were there in Athens. And I want you to pick up with me here in verse 16 in Acts chapter 17. And the Bible says, now, while Paul waited for them, that's Timotheus and Silas in Ath at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him. What is it that stirred Paul's spirit? Was he just sitting on the couch one day and, or sitting on some cushions and, and the Spirit of God stirred him? No, he was stirred by what he saw. And you see it there in the verse. The Bible says his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Now, Paul was not discouraged by that. He was not overwhelmed by that. He did not think, well, there's no hope for the gospel here. Everybody already believes something else. This is going to be a high, impenetrable wall to get through. It's going to be impossible. That's not what Paul did. His heart was stirred. Notice what the Bible says happened next in verse 17. Therefore, that is because of what he saw, because of being stirred. Therefore, disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons, and in the market daily with them that met with him. The word disputed talks about a conversation that's back and forth, a conversation back and forth. Uh, sometimes in that conversation back and forth, it's an opportunity to reason with people. It's not an arguing, it's a discourse. It's a, it's a discourse, and that's what Paul is doing in disputing. And, and he talks to people, not just the Jews, he talks to people involved in other religions and other faiths in that area. Notice here verse 18. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him, and some said, what will this babbler say? Other some he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him unto Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is, for thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. This place where Paul was was noted as a, as a place where ideas were exchanged, where theologies were exchanged. Many times people from other cultures and other lands would meet in this place. And the place where they met is, was, was in a building we know of it as the Parthenon. And that building was about uh, 176 feet long, 75 feet wide, 66 feet high. And on each end were eight pillars and along each side, 17 pillars. Now, 66 feet is about one and a half times the average height of our telephone poles here. This was a huge building. It was a structure. It was unmistakable. In fact, it was built so soundly that there are remnants of it even today that still remain. And on this place would be the place where ideas would be exchanged. And I want you to notice how Paul approaches the people of Athens. I want you to notice how he approaches the people on Mars Hill. In fact, we'll look at Paul's approach. We will also take a look at Paul's awareness. And then we'll follow that up with Paul's appeal. But notice Paul's approach. He doesn't come in to cram anything down anybody's throat. He doesn't come in as a hostile. Paul instead is very polite He's very bold. Notice what the Bible says here, beginning in verse, 20, uh, verse 22 again. He says, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. 
Paul is not going to approach these unbelievers as the enemy. Do you realize that unbelievers are not our enemy? So many times in churches, there's this hostile attitude toward those who do not know the Savior. Well, I came to Christ because the people who knew the Savior were not hostile toward me. There was a difference, yes, but they were not hostile to me. They were not looking at me as though I was the enemy. They loved me. And because of that, I was drawn to Christ. And Paul says, you're too superstitious. Now, these were people of faith of some sort. Now, their, their faith differed than our faith in this regard. Why, the more they studied their false gods and their, their uh, false god, goddesses and their idols, they would worship out of fear. They would worship out of the sense that I don't want to offend the gods at all. Whereas you and I worship out of a sense of devotion to our God. We love our God. And the more we worship him, it seems the more we love him. We don't, we don't, we don't, we're not afraid of stepping out of line and the Lord's going to strike us down like, like the gods and goddesses of Athens would do. Instead, we love this God who has done so much on our behalf. We're obedient to him because we love him. He says, I perceive thou are far too superstitious. In fact, these folks were so superstitious that there was a, a, a national disaster there, a, a, a natural disaster, natural disaster. And they figured, oh, we've offended a God. I don't know how it is that we've offended a God. We worship gods in so many ways. And, and also, there must be a God of which we do not know. So let's build an altar to the unknown God. There we go. Now we've covered all the bases. There can be no gods offended now. We come to verse 20, 23. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. God that made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and earth, dwelleth not in temples made with hands, nor is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath and all things. Now, as Paul goes in, he is, he is very polite. He is very polite. He is also very aware of the culture that he's dealing with. He's very aware of the culture that he is dealing with. He's aware, and you see it in here, he knows that the Athenians think that they're the pinnacle of society, that everything revolved around the Greeks. And what Paul is going to let them know is that there is a Lord above the Greeks. Uh, there is a Lord above the Athenians. There's a Lord above, above the Greeks. He says in verse 24, he, that God is the one that made the world, that God is the one that made the world and all the things. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He dwelleth not in temples made with hands. And so Paul is declaring, not only in a polite way, he's also declaring in a theological way who this God is. Now, isn't that interesting that Paul would bring theology in to personal evangelism? That Paul would bring theology in, and yet that is exactly what he's doing. I remember my wife and I had the opportunity to visit with some missionaries in Fiji. And we landed in Nandi, and one of the first things that you do when you get to Fiji, at least at that time, is as you're driving out of the city, there was a Hindu temple there. A Hindu temple that housed a bunch of Hindu gods. Didn't house all of them because there are thousands of Hindu gods. But it housed a, a bunch of them. And, and so we stopped there. It was very colorful. It was a, a very uh, vibrant-looking place. 
There was a sign that said that you had to take your shoes off. There was a sign that said that there were certain things that were prohibited uh, in the temple. And if you were to worship any of those gods, certain things that you had to abstain from before you could worship those gods. Well, we took our shoes off and we went in. This was fascinating. And when we went in, the, it looked like almost like an indoor uh, horse arena, a, a tall ceiling. And along the edges, not stables for horses, but along the edges, booths for gods. And there were bars in front of these gods so that people couldn't reach out and, and mess with them. And they were brightly colored. And you would see places where people would leave their, their um, sacrifices or their offerings that they would give sacrificially, not animal sacrifices, but they would leave fruits and vegetables and flowers and all sorts of things. And as you went along, you could see that people were worshiping these gods. And we came to one place, one of these booths that had a sign on it. And the sign said, because we looked past the sign, and the God that was supposed to be in that booth wasn't in that booth. And the sign said that he had been removed from there for refurbishing. <laughs> Could you imagine if somebody had made a pilgrimage out of all the gods that they were going to worship? They were going to worship that one God. He was going to be the pinnacle God that they were going to worship. And they make a pilgrimage to this place. And finally, they get to, get to worship this God and go into the temple there and He's out because he needs to be painted. <laughs> needs, to be needs to be repaired and painted. But you know, the Greeks worshiped those kinds of gods as well. And not the same gods as the Hindus, but I mean, they worshiped gods and goddesses and idols. And, then, and people would offer animal sacrifices to those gods and goddesses. And the smokes of those sacrifices would climb into the, into the, uh, into the sky. And you could see the landscape dotted with places of shrines and temples. And so Paul gets theological. There is a God above all gods. There is a God who has made the heaven and the earth. And then he mentions, too, this, the God in the sphere where they live. In verse 16, he hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on all the face of the earth and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. Pause there for a moment because no doubt some of the Greeks were squirming at this. In verse 26, he says, hath made of one blood. Well, the Greeks did not believe that. They thought that they were superior. And they thought that everybody else were barbarians and therefore inferior. But Paul says, oh, no, the barbarians and the Greeks, God has made them all of one blood, of one blood, all nations for, of men, for to dwell on the face of the earth. And so Paul is acquainted with the, the uh, culture of these Greeks. So he comes in again. He's polite. He's theological, he's confident, he's bold. He doesn't come in as a hostile. And then notice verse 27, that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of you. Paul makes it very clear that this God is not distant. He makes it very clear that this God is not aloof. He makes it very clear that this God of whom he speaks is approachable and he is close. And if you would just feel after him, you could find him. If you would just turn to him, he is right there. And, and so Paul uh, begins to make an inroad, I, I trust, into the hearts of those, those to whom he speaks. And then notice this awareness, this awareness of verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being. As certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Now that's fascinating. Paul quotes a Greek poet. That's fascinating to me. 
It was a Greek poet. It wasn't Old Testament scripture. It wasn't from the book of Psalms. He quotes a Greek poet. Now, that doesn't mean that that Greek poet was infallible. Uh, but what Paul is doing is he is aware of, his, of the culture he's in, and he brings something from that culture that does line up with scripture and brings it to the attention of that culture. Why, well, one of your own poets said that we're the offspring of God. By offspring, we're talking about that God is the generator, that God has generated us. It doesn't mean that we're all children of God. We become children of God when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But it means that we have been generated from God, that there is a God behind our creation. There is a God behind our being. There's a God behind our existence. And so Paul brings in a poet. Again, I find that fascinating because sometimes, sometimes we put up a wall and we know nothing of our culture. And yet sometimes, and we don't want to be pressed into the mold of our culture. We do not want to be pressed into the mold of our culture. The Bible makes it very clear we're not to be conformed to this world. But we ought to have some awareness of the things that are, that are going on. We ought to have some awareness of some of those things that people consider to be authoritative. We, I'm amazed at, at what we're seeing today, and no doubt you are as well. There's so many things that could grab for our attention. But let me go to the children for just a moment. The ages seven through 25, you've heard of Generation X. You've heard of Generation Y. You've heard of the baby boomers. But that generation, from eight years old to 25, they're called Generation Z. The next generation will be Alpha. We go through the alphabet again. But um, Generation Z. And you know, that generation, that generation basically, uh, eight years old up to 25 years old, they've got some characteristics that we ought to be aware of because I believe, I believe it could be a launching pad into amazing evangelistic opportunities. You realize Generation Z is the only generation to be, to be alive, only generation to be alive, not knowing what life was like without a cell phone. Not knowing what life was like without a cell phone. They, and because of the access that we have technologically through, through FaceTime, through, uh, through Zoom. In fact, they call Generation Z the Zoomers. And through the pandemic, you could see why. Because their education was supposed to be coming through Zoom but they call them the Zoomers. This is the most technologically savvy generation ever to exist. 72% of them claim to have some type of a faith. Think of that. 72% of them claim to have some type of a faith. Now, compared to the generation before, the generation before them was called the nun generation. Because when they were asked about what they believed or what faith they had, they said none. And so we see a little bit of a pendulum swing. 72% claim to have some type of faith. Now, it may not be as vibrant uh, uh, and, and locked on as maybe what we saw in the 70s and the 80s. But I'm telling you, there is a wonderful, wonderful opportunity there. 46% of them have their own revenue stream. 46% of them have their own revenue stream. 
Now, the kids, like my age, when we were growing up, we had the neighborhood playground, the swing set and the slide and, and the merry-go-round and all of those, those dangerous, life-threatening things. <laughs> Nowadays, though, the playground for that generation of 8 years old to 25 is a global playground. It's not the swing set out of the yard. Instead, it's gaming. And so the friends that they have are from all over. And even in the course of gaming, there are conversations that are had. And there are, there's some semblance of a relationship that is forged. We can't discount that and write that off and just reject it. I believe God can use that. I believe the Lord could use that if we're just simply aware now, I realize, too, that there are times when things could go overboard. Life's not all about gaming, certainly. And, and there could be a, a heavy uh, draw to all of that. And again, I, we certainly understand that. We would avoid those types of addictions and that kind of thing. But it's a global playground. This generation, 8 years old to 25 years old, are facing mental health issues at younger ages than ever before. Because they're exposed to things at a younger and younger age. And you know the cultural drive is to, is to sexualize children at younger and younger ages. To make them, uh, to, to many times form them into an image of, uh, uh, of someone that you would have seen maybe in their 20s and their 30s. And so they're at younger and younger ages dressing more provocatively. They're getting their ideas of what relationships are like and what love is like uh, and how to interact with the opposite gender. They're getting those images from off of the internet. And they have access to things that they should not have any access to. They have th Their innocence is lost in the exposure to their hearts. But I'm telling you, that provides an opportunity, an opportunity for the gospel, an opportunity for the transformation of the gospel. It also provides us an opportunity when young people are dealing with depression at younger ages and when they're dealing with anger at younger ages, when they're dealing with the, the sense there's, there's no direction, there's no rudder, things are just happening by chance. It gives us the opportunity to let them know about a God that loves them, the God in whom we have our being, a God who is real close, who is right there, a God who makes no mistakes. He makes no mistakes regarding our gender. He makes no mistakes regarding where we are. He makes no mistakes. He is a wise God. He is a good God. And we have an opportunity to share that with that generation. Oh, that, oh, that we would have our eyes open to that. That we would be aware. Just as Paul was aware. Not for the sake of awareness, but for the sake of making a way for the gospel. Paul continues on. In verse 30. I'm sorry, in verse 29. For then as much as ye are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art or man's device. Let me just pause there for a moment. You and I, you, we understand that in this culture in which we live, we have the opportunity to talk to people about Jesus, the personal Savior. But in a day and age also that we live in, this day and age, we have to be very clear. He's not a personalized Savior. He's a personal Savior. By personalized, I mean there are people that say, well, I'll believe in a Jesus that'll save me from 
hell, but I don't want to believe in a Jesus that wants to tamper with my life. I'll believe in a Jesus that'll forgive me of my sins, but I don't want to believe in a Jesus that wants to change my relationships. I'll believe in a Jesus that wants to make my life uh, better, but I'll not believe in a Jesus that wants to overhaul my life and my thinking. That's a personalized Jesus. The fact is, God does want to overhaul our lives, and he does want to change us. And our joy, unspeakable and full of glory, is rooted to our obedience to him and our communing with him and walking with him and knowing him. And so we, we have, many times we're like the Greek, uh, Greek worshipers. We, we personalize Jesus. And, well, I want a Jesus like this. Well, I think Jesus would do this. I think Jesus would feel this way. I think Jesus wants me to be happy. And this makes me happy. And even though it ruins our life in the long haul, some, certain decisions that we make in the long term, uh, we, we say, well, I think Jesus would want me to do this. But let's make sure to check things by the scriptures. Amen. Need to move on. Amen. Verse 30. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, now, Paul, his approach was with respect. His approach, his approach was theological. His approach was bold. He's aware of that culture and uses that awareness to bring the gospel to bear on the hearts of those to whom he speaks. But then I want you to notice, to notice his appeal. He doesn't just leave it with, yes, there is a God. But notice his appeal. In verse 30, the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Amen. Because he hath appointed a day in the which he will judge the world in righteousness. He will judge the world in righteousness. And he tells us the standard of righteousness. He says, by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. God is going to judge the world. The standard by that judge of that judgment will be the Lord Jesus Christ will be judged against him. And of course, he also is the judge. You know that from other scriptures. And the Bible makes it clear that he is qualified to judge because he is the one whom God has raised from the dead. Now, immediately there were people in the crowd that immediately turned Paul off. Oh, he's talking about a resurrection. That's crazy. That's just crazy. We all know that death is final. Nobody comes back from the dead. But Paul preaches it even if it's not accepted. He still preaches it because it's the truth. And what kind of a response can we expect? I love these verses, verses 32 through 34. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked and some will mock. When we, when we make the right approach with, with politeness, with courtesy, yet with theology and with boldness, when we are aware of the culture around us and bring the gospel to bear upon that culture around us, and when we make the appeal, well, you know what God wants you to do with that information? He wants you to repent. He wants you to turn to him. Well, some are going to mock. And in addition to that, the Bible says, others said, we will hear thee again of this matter. Some delayed. And sometimes that's what we'll see. Some people will delay. And in those delays, while we seek to press for a choice, while we seek to press for a decision, sometimes in those delays, there is a danger that one would delay and forget. Sometimes in those delays, God works his continuing work of conviction because even though they may get out of the place where the word has been preached, 
The word has a barb in it. And that word and the Holy Spirit of God will go and will haunt that person with conviction until they turn to Christ. And so some, some delay, some mock, some delay. Notice here in verse 34, howbeit some certain men clave unto him and believe. Some stuck to Paul. That word clave is a word that talks about something being glued to something else. They stuck to Paul and they believed among the which and i love this because because luke when he writes this he says hey y'all could check this out you could check here's some names here's some people some real people in a real time that heard paul's message on mars hill that were converted you could check it out notice what the bible says among the which was dionysius the areopagite and a woman named damares and others with them all heard some mocked some delayed, some believed. Let's use the right approach. Let's be aware of the culture where we are as a launching pad to get the gospel to folks. And the power of the gospel is not in our awareness, certainly not. The power of the gospel is in the gospel and in its proclamation. And then let's make the appeal. Would you repent? Would you turn to the Lord? Would you believe on this one who's resurrected from the grave? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the book of Acts, and I thank you for Acts chapter 17. And I thank you that Paul lays out for us a template. And we can apply this template in our workplace, in our neighborhood. We can apply this template in, in certain social aspects. Maybe we're sitting on the, uh, in the stands with parents watching our kids play soccer. Maybe it's a family gathering. There's all so, there are all sorts of places where this template could be applied. And it's there for our instruction. It's there for our learning. So help us, Father, to look for ways, to look for avenues, to get the gospel to the people that are around us. And help us to understand lost people are not the enemy. The devil's the enemy. Lost people are not the enemy. They're our ministry. They're our ministry. Oh, Lord, open our eyes to avenues. Open our eyes to opportunities that we might get the gospel to the lost. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.